Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Today's episode has been sponsored by Jay McLaughlin. Jay McLaughlin is a timeless lifestyle brand with incredible style and a spirit of connection. I am obsessed with Jay McLaughlin and have been so honored that they are sponsoring my Zibbyverse tour. It just so happens that the tour goes to so many communities and areas of the country that have Jay McLaughlin stores. And I love that the brand is philanthropic through Jay McLaughlin's local and loyal programming. Host store events to give back to organizations that are meaningful to Jay McLaughlin's local communities. I also love the fact that the clothes are just so chic They make me feel polished and modern, and the best part is that most of the line comes in fabrics that don't wrinkle. I especially love the dresses, the cashmere sweaters, the other sweaters. You'll see them all over my Instagram. I typically tag at Jay McLaughlin, and so you can check it out. It is absolutely one of my favorite brands, and I am over the moon excited to be working with them. In fact, I want to share the love with all of you. Jay McLaughlin is giving 20% off new customers and listeners of my podcast with special code ZIBBY20, capital Z-I-B-B-Y 20. That's 20% off for new customers and listeners of the podcast with special code capital Z-ZIBBY20. Take advantage of it today. My favorites are this white, open, long cashmere sweater that I've been wearing on every flight that I've taken on this tour. I have a blue with light blue horizontal striped sweater, several dresses I even wore on Corny America. Check it out, Jay McLaughlin. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast that you're listening to right now, thank you so much, called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It is a daily podcast, 365 days a year, and each day we talk to an author about all of the things related to their career, their book, their life, and more in 30 minutes or less, because who has time? I am now an author myself, although I wasn't when I started this podcast, and you can get my new memoir, Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, wherever books are sold starting July 1st, and my children's book, Princess Charming. You can learn more about me at zibbyowens.com, but really, you're here to learn more about the authors, and that is what we're going to do. Also, be sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Zcast Podcast Network. You can learn more at zcastnetwork.com and definitely check out those shows as well. Joyce Carol Oates is the author of Babysitter, a novel. 
She's also the recipient of the National Humanities Medal, the National Book Critics Circle, Ivan Sandroff Lifetime Achievement Award, the National Book Award, and the 2019 Jerusalem Prize for Lifetime Achievement. And she's been nominated several times for the Pulitzer Prize. She has written some of the most enduring fiction of our time, including the national bestsellers We Were the Mulvaney's, Blonde, and the New York Times bestseller The Falls, which won the 2005 Pre-Femina. In 2020, she was awarded the Sino del Duca World Prize for Literature. She is the Roger S. Berland 52 Distinguished Professor of the Humanities Emerita at Princeton University and has been a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters since 1978. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to talk about Babysitter. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. This book completely kept me up at night. I absolutely love how you wrote it. I am like in it every moment trying to figure out what is happening, like worrying that the scariest thing is right around the corner. Um, the the visual aspect of it, like the heels sinking into the hallway carpet. I mean, just like every little moment and, and even what it's like to be a mom with her gala benefit, like just all this stuff. So thank, I I just, I'm just absolutely loving this book. So thanks. Thank you. I was thinking it's as a mother that she finally comes to her senses. Yes. Protecting her children. When it came down to it, she was basically doing this instinctive Good thing. Would you mind telling listeners a little about how what inspired you to write Babysitter and really what it's about? Oh, sure. Well, when I lived in Detroit in the 1970s, there was actually in the suburb of the northern suburbs of Detroit, there was a serial killer. And he was called by the press Babysitter. He was also called the Oakland County Child Killer. And basically, the novel presents this person as he was in real life, historically. In, it's hard. What I wanted to do was to give, an, give the impression in a very realistic, psychologically vivid way of what it's like to live in a world immediately where there, there is a serial killer right there, perhaps a few miles from you. You don't know who it is. Maybe he's in the grocery store with you or the drugstore. And so when we were living there in in the 1970s, it was an existentially very melodramatic and somewhat paranoid time. I was friendly with several women, maybe five or six or seven women who lived in Birmingham and Bloomfield Hills. And they're like Hannah and and her friends, quite well-to-do very well-educated, really intelligent women, but most of them did not have careers. They might have had careers, except they were married, and they were married to quite well-to-do men, executives in in, uh, corporations and small businesses. So I did really experience that sense of paranoia and fear opening the newspaper every morning and seeing whether the babysitter had struck again. He, He kidnapped tortured and I think mutilated children between the ages of about seven and 13. And most of them were boys and a couple were girls. It wasn't clear whether he meant to take girls or whether he thought they were boys when he took them. So I thought, I think it had a sort of homoerotic, it was um, pedophilia, but it might've been homosexual. I'm not sure. 
Now, the babysitter was never apprehended, and it was thought that there are, there are speculation about who he might have been. Law enforcement has some idea. So there are maybe one or two people who might have been the babysitter. One of them committed suicide, and one of them, I think, may have died in prison. So the novel has this uh, strong core of reality. It's sort of like malevolent radiation, <laughs> like something's radioactive, and that's the babysitter. He's there. And then around that, in kind of orbit, are dom- domestic situations and people with marriages and a woman who makes some decisions that turn out to be mistaken. She made some mistakes. But I don't feel that she was in any way malicious or even stupid. She sort of made mistakes that women were making in those days. Maybe not so much now. After Me Too, women are more alert and alive to being exploited. But I think in the 1970s, not so much. Wow. The way you wrote Hannah's character and how you allude to some sexual abuse, perhaps from her own father, or you keep calling him daddy, and how you dribble that in. Tell me about that. Well, yes, Hannah is a woman who, as a girl, had a very uh, kind of anxious relationship with her father. He was judgmental. He was sarcastic. He was like the dominant figure in the household. The mother was subservient to him, which is very typical of households in the 1950s. It was basically like the template, I think, for the patriarchy in, the, in that you know mid-century. And so girls were either traditionally trained or unconsciously conditioned to try to please men, to be smiling and, and gracious and acquiescent. And I guess you could say polite and sweet. You know, there's nothing really wrong with being polite and sweet. We, we all smile a good deal. But little girls are sort of trained that they should do that. If they don't do that, then they get this kind of hostility from the father. So Hannah was really conditioned by a father who wanted her to be as beautiful as possible, as charming and seductive as possible. He himself is a rather enigmatic figure. I call him Joker Daddy, because he often made jokes and he was ironic and he was not really easily understood by his children. Well, I feel like there was also this level of, you know, unsettledness when she thinks about him and that relationship. And I feel like it comes into her relationship with the man in the hotel. And somehow it's like a backdrop for perhaps making the decision to visit him. I mean, the novel opens with Hannah, basically a man touches her hand, her wrist rather, during a, a gala. And it and she decides that this will be the man to suddenly have an affair with in the hotel. And you tell it in just the detail of her driving on the windy highway and looking at the empty gala reception room where she had just had, she had just co-chaired and got to stand up and preen in front of all the fans and the doubt and the self-doubt and then all of the, the, the mothering doubt too, right? You, and then when you have her daughter get very ill, like tell me about that. So she feels like it's almost a punishment from God that she had made this mistake of, of going. And then of course the, well, I mean, I don't want to give things away, but, 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 
fairly early first hundred pages or so, the daughter gets very sick. So tell me, tell me about that plot line and how I love how you have some line about how it unites her and her husband, Wes, right? When they both are there and scared, waiting to see how there was something so unifying about that for their relationship in a way. Yes, well, Hannah is is a very devoted mother, but she's not really identified by her children in any other way except as a mother. I think she feels that she's she's on the cusp of turning 40. She is still, she's a very attractive woman and she has lightened her hair and has nice clothes, but she's she sort of feels that she's losing her attractions as a woman. She her her, her marriage is a kind of comfortable marriage but her husband may not even be always faithful to her she doesn't exactly know because he travels a good deal so what she has in a she embarks upon an adventure that quickens her excitement and maybe raises her estimation of herself as a woman a little bit she goes from being somebody who's not noticed in the household her husband is eating breakfast and looking at the newspaper. You know, he's not really conscious of her. Then he goes away to his office in a very nice building. I know that I know Detroit very well and I lived there. And so I, I put him in a nice office building. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it's like now in 2022, but at that time, this sort of Fisher Center in New York was maybe like Rockefeller Center. It was it was pretty classy. And and he's from a very uh, affluent Gross Point family. So he's sort of, he has access to a lot of social connections and financial associates that she doesn't understand. I think she just feels that she's lost an identity. She's a kind of non-entity. Her children love her, but they love her as mommy. Like they're, they really adore her, but she doesn't feel that, that they know her. And then Wes, of course, doesn't even look at her anymore. Now, the man who pursues her is, I don't want to give out too much of the novel, but we learn retrospectively that he was zeroing in on her, you know, and that there are predators like that who can be extremely charming. They may be psychopaths or sociopaths, and they can just exude such an air of sincerity and and fascination and he also has a connection social connections i think that people get a sense of their worth as they connect with others i'm kind of looking at the sociology of a an upper middle class society a suburban society where an individual is sort of buoyed up by the regard of other people mm-hmm. oh, Hannah is so happy when she gets invited to the Detroit, the Friends of the Detroit Institute of Arts, and she's on this committee to do the gala. And I remember those years. I was never a part of that society, but my friends were. Like one year, a friend could be the chair of the gala. An enormous amount of work, all volunteer. But you're at the head table. The mayor of the city sits with you. Maybe the governor comes. You know, you're a woman who's basically a housewife, but you have a a well-to-do husband and you give money to this charity and then you become uh, somebody for an evening. You're really 
a VIP. So Hannah gets, she gets that and she's actually applauded. And she looks around and sees that these people, they really like her. But at the same time, it's it's kind of a performance and a charade. So I wanted to suggest how how kind of touching and real those experiences are. I, I didn't mean to be satirical. My friends who belong to these organizations were genuinely altruistic and and they were cultured and they were like Hannah and her friends, kind of up, kind of keeping up, you know, like the friends of the Detroit Public Library, uh, the friends of an app, friends of opera, friends of the concerts or chamber music concert, friends of the symphony. Those are all women volunteering their time. And I don't present them satirically. I do present them as somewhat naive and easily victimized. This is one character named Marcella, and she's sort of at the periphery. She's a little bit like Hannah. And it's just mentioned very casually that she's disappeared. And there's like $800,000 missing from her bank account. And like, what's happened to her? You know, like she's obviously been exploited. I don't pursue that, but I think the reader would sort of notice that. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You wrote the relationship between Hannah and her housekeeper, Imogen. Like, that was so amazing. I mean, you because you include her interior monologue about her relationship, and then you show why sometimes she's almost snapping because she's feeling so deficient in her own ways. Tell me more about that relationship. Well, Ismelda is actually based on a Filipina housekeeper of a friend who was just such a wonderful person. She was like the heartbeat of the, of the household. She took care of the, the child. She did the cooking. She did all this Eventually, she became the companion of the wife because there was there was a divorce and the household fell apart. And so this uh, quite attractive, very petite 
Filipina housekeeper sort of stepped forward and she had a lot of uh, responsibility. I don't know what has happened to her now because the house was, the whole household just broke up. The, the wife, I think, had a nervous breakdown and became an alcoholic. The husband fled and went to New York. And I think the housekeeper may have, she may have been an illegal immigrant and she may have just disappeared somewhere. She's probably working for someone else. She was just wonderful. So uh, Ismelda was not her name. <laughs> but, but Ismelda is a portrait. I wanted to really look at kind of these quiet people in households who may be running everything. You know, why the, the Hannah is out having these trysts with her lover and having awful experiences. It's Ismelda taking care of the children. She makes the dinner, she serves it, she takes care of the house, she does the vacuuming, you know. She's sort of holding things together. She drives the children to school. She picks them up. She's just doing everything. Wow. Is this some sort of commentary on that type of mothering? Do you feel like Hannah in her is a good mother, quote unquote? Oh, I don't know that she's not a good mother. I really, again, it's not a satirical portrait. It's more like holding a mirror up to that society you know, if your husband is making a, a couple million dollars a year or whatever, you know, and you have some children, it's really not all that unreasonable that you have a housekeeper or a nanny. You know, you can afford it. You can have two cars or three cars. And, and the housekeeper or the nanny is really very, very helpful for, for women. I have never had a housekeeper or a nanny, so I'm not, I'm not writing about myself. But I, I want to be respectful of, of people who are different from myself, who come from a different background. I think it's, it's too easy just to satirize, you know, and, and show caricatures of people. I don't ever really do that. I try not to do that in my writing. So I'm, I wrote a whole novel, a book of American martyrs, where I spent a lot of time with people, we would call them Trump people today, people who are anti-abortion, evangelical Christians. And I wanted to present them sincerely as they are without presenting them as clowns or bullies or fools or evil, but satirical portraits. So I guess as a novelist, I want to present people who are different from myself. Now the reader might feel, the reader should have her own opinion. Like the reader might think, oh, Hannah is a bad mother. And Hannah's doing something I wouldn't do. Hannah goes away because she has an appointment with this man. She leaves home and her daughter has a, has a temperature. And she's sort of gambling, you know, should I stay home or keep the little girl at home? And she decides to go off and let the housekeeper deal with the problem. So that's one of those decisions that she makes as a mother, which I would guess a lot of mothers make and fathers you know you if you're a parent full time you make little decisions now and then that usually turn out okay you know but like you allow a play date with somebody that you wondered about it then it turned out your child got covid or something i mean you can't really predict i don't think it means anyone's a bad mother but then hannah's very guilty and she she feels terrible and she thinks that she caused her daughter, gave this uh, 
she thinks it's meningitis, but it isn't that serious. And so she vows she's never going to do this again, but she doesn't keep that vow. Even though it seems highly unpleasurable what she goes through. Well, again, that's sort of hard to say. I don't think I would, <laughs> I don't think I would tolerate anything like that. But the thing for Hannah is that she is so utterly bored mm-hmm. in her life. She has financial security. She has a husband who's not very attentive to her, but he's there. And she has so she has these meetings with the women's organizations. She doesn't have any excitement in her life and nobody's looking at her pretending to love her. I mean, it's maybe just a charade. You know, I don't want to give too much away, but she sincerely believes that this man is sexually attracted to her and that this is all very real. It seems real to her. Again, that wouldn't be anything that I would do, but but definitely people do these things. And I was not satirizing her, just sort of presenting that. But I do know people who made really bad mistakes getting married. They just made a mistake. And an honest mistake. Can you tell me more about the process of writing this book? And even the, the, the decisions you made about, you know, interspersing some of the all italicized, almost group voices from the deceased? Well, it started off as a short story. It was published, it was called The Babysitter. So it was a short story, maybe 15, 10 years ago. And I always wanted to go back to it because Hannah is going, it starts off, Hannah's driving on the Detroit Expressway. She's going to the hotel. And then she's with this man. Then she comes home. And in the way in the background is the babysitter, the serial killer. He's not in the story, but he's like a prospect, you know, like something in the background. So when I went back to the story, I took the beginning and then I obviously what we call enhanced or developed it. And this is some backstory. And then I go into the minds of the children who have been victimized, who have been killed. And eventually we do discover who babysitter is, which one can't do in, in real life. You can't find, it's, this is not a true crime story. In a way, it's like a true crime story in the beginning. But then I actually have an idea. I strongly feel this was probably, this person was probably babysitter. He committed suicide. He took his own life. And maybe some people who know that he is, when somebody is a pedophile, an active pedophile with a record, you can be sure that other people know about that. There's maybe pedophiles, like pedophile, pedophilia rings, and they send things on the internet to one another. And it's a, it's a society, it's a secret society that we don't have access to. So the babysitter was probably, it was thought he was part of this pedophilia ring in Detroit where boys were shared with, particularly boys like who weren't protected by parents who might have single mothers who were prostitutes. And I did do research into that. So I have a little bit of that in the novel. And there are, there are women and girls who are so addicted to cocaine or crack that they actually give up their children for some, to a pedophiliac. A pedophile 
I mean, they actually do that. This is act, this is real. And so there's a little bit of that in my novel. But mostly it's set from Hannah's perspective. And when you set out to write this, did you know the whole, all the pieces of the puzzle ahead of time? And then how did you go about writing it? Like how long did it take to write? And what was your process like in the writing of it? Oh, well, all novels take place over a period of time, a period of months. And I always knew the ending because the first chapter is actually the ending. I mean, in the first chapter, it's the ending. So, but then we don't know how exactly how the first chapter ends. So I have the kind of book bookends or the frame. Yeah. I always knew she was going and maybe she's got a gun in her, her handbag because it's a little heavier than usual. So we are a signal sent to the reader that the handbag is heavier than usual. Does she have a gun? She's going to use the gun. And she's in a, she's been backed in a corner like a trapped rat and she's being blackmailed and she's desperate. Mm -hmm. Whether in real life, Hannah could actually take out a gun and shoot somebody. I don't know. And and this doubtful that she could do that. And maybe she doesn't actually even have to do it. Well, I'm always tempted if anybody reads my novels to ask if they really if, if they really know what happened, but I don't want to do that because it would give away it, it would give away the plot of the novel. <laughs> but anyway, it's very intricately plotted. So it's the second chapter to the end that really ascertains what is going to happen. And then the actual final chapter is leading up to that, if that makes any sense. Yes, I did plot carefully because it is also a mystery and a thriller. Yep. So that in that genre, you plot everything carefully. So if, if, somebody's, if somebody's a killer, if somebody's been killed, it's your responsibility to solve that crime in the novel. Mm-hmm. That's a, a tradition or a convention of mystery detective fiction and thriller. So I did that. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much. That's it. <laughs> Hope that was easy. <laughs> Ponytail is my favorite character. You know, oh yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, I, I really found it quite riveting and page turning and beautifully written. And I just, you know, having come from more of that world, just Totally, I don't know, just absolutely loved it. So thank you so well, much. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moon.
MoonPig.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.